I love the time of greeting. If you could make your way back to your seats. And uh, if you turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 25, we're going to be reading this morning. And Caitlin Lysite is going to read our scripture this morning. So Caitlin, would you please read for us? It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief's priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why are you troubling her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house. The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city, and found it just as he told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came to the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after the other, Is it I? They said to him, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, he said to them, This is the, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Thank you, Caitlin. You know, I'm going to date myself in this, but have you, let me just ask you a question. Have you ever lived through something that really transformed the world? Have you experienced something that the world was different and then it, Something happened and it changed. I remember in the late 80s, early 90s, I started hearing about this thing called the internet. And people would say, like, you're going to be able to click on something and you'll be able to learn about it. And then you can click on something else in the article and you'll be able to learn more about it. And you can just keep doing it. And I was like, what, what is that thing? I have no idea. And then they talked about this thing called email. And I remember talking to the pastor saying, could I get some email? Because I was working with the college students at the time, and a lot of the college students have email. They said, you don't really need email. Pastors don't need email. <laughs> Looking back now, you see how the internet and email has transformed our world. And if you're sitting here thinking, and you're young, you're saying, it shows how old you are. Well, number one, you're right. 
Number two, I think maybe 30 years from now, artificial intelligence might have the same kind of effect upon us. But in our text today, Jesus about, is about to share transforming truth that is going to transform humanity more than the internet or artificial intelligence ever could. And, and the irony is, as we read about it, some of the people involved seem to be just at various levels of awareness of what's happening. But as we read today, God wants us to know and understand that Jesus Christ came to do something that no one else in human history could do. And then he did it. And what he did is unsurpassingly amazing. We're entering the final days of Jesus' life here in Mark's gospel, and we've seen throughout the series, there's this question behind all of these stories. Who is this Jesus? Who is he? They keep saying, who is this man who teaches authoritatively, can forgive sins, he raises the dead? Who, who is this man the winds and the seas obey him? And it comes to chapter 8. We read this uh, a couple of months ago. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And he says, I'm the Christ. Peter says, you're the Christ. And he got that right. But then Jesus started to explain he was going to have to die. And Peter, in all his great wisdom, tried to talk Jesus out of dying. <laughs> and we know what happened there. Jesus and the, uh, Peter and the disciples, they just couldn't understand why the Messiah would have to die. They couldn't get it through their brains. So in our text today, they're still not clear about these things. But Jesus is no longer speaking in parables. He's speaking plainly. He wants the disciples and he wants us to understand what Jesus is about to do and what the life world-transforming effects of it are. Jesus' life literally is in mortal danger. The same enemies we've seen since the beginning of the gospel are conspiring to kill him and arrest him. But now their plan is actually taking shape. And, uh, but, you know, and despite this, and I just urge you to think about it, despite all that sort of intrigue and the danger that's lurking behind, in Mark's narrative, you just get the sense that everything is going according to plan, just the way God planned it. So today we have two simple points, anointed for burial and Passover redefined, a new covenant. Our, our first scene here opens up anointed for buried, verses 1 through 11. Our first scene opens up with the chief priests and the scribes seeking how to arrest Jesus without making a big deal about it. They want to kill him, but they want to do it on quiet. They don't want... The, the, the city is filled with pilgrims because this is the Passover feast. And so they don't want a riot to break out if they arrest Jesus. So... They want to get rid of him, though, his talk about the kingdom, his stories that make them look bad, his difficult questions. And they probably couldn't have done it unless somebody close to Jesus helped them, which we see will happen in verse 10. But in the midst of this story, they find themselves in Simon the leper's house. Now, we, we assume Simon is no longer a leper, but we're not told how. But we, we know he couldn't have a party if he was a leper. There wouldn't be people that would be able to come over. But maybe Jesus healed them. We don't know. There's no, not told. But in, at this party, this woman, we don't know who she is, and this, as Mark tells the story, and she comes out and she breaks open an alabaster jar of pure nard. Now, that's kind of a strange word to us. We don't know what it means. But nard is actually, it's, it's an herb that comes from India that was very, very expensive. We learn uh, from verse 5 that it was worth more than 300 denarii, which if you look to your footnote, a denarii is one day's wage. Now, it's hard to 
transfer what the value of that is into the present day. But if you think about it, that's about a year's wages for a laborer. So let's just conservatively say something worth about $30,000 to $50,000. A lot of money. It's worth a lot. And she just comes up, pours it on Jesus' head. And it's hard to imagine the cultural barriers that this woman had to overcome as a woman to come and, and come to Jesus and then break open this expensive ointment, pour it on his head. And Jesus apparently cooperates with it because he allows her to do it. And he's the guest of honor. And, and, and what missed the guest, though, isn't this sort of the, the, the gender inappropriateness of this. What missed them is the cost. They're like, this is nuts. I mean, and, and, and now to, to understand the context, during Passover, it was a custom for the Jewish people to give to the poor. And giving to the poor is a very important value in Jewish culture. It's, it's in the law, Deuteronomy 21. Jesus actually, when he, when he says what he says here, is quoting the law. And it was important to Jesus. Jesus cared about the poor. His disciples cared about the poor. And, 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 and so just imagine, if you will, imagine like somebody coming up and taking dollars $40,000 worth of stuff and pouring it out on Mark right here. You're worth it, Mark. $40,000. It would raise questions, wouldn't it? You'd be like, what? And look what they say. Why was this ointment wasted? They say it's wasted. Before we get to Jesus' response, let's just say it's a fairly reasonable sort of response that they have. They're, they're indignant. They're, they're scolding this woman. But look at Jesus' response after they scolder. What does he say in return? Look at verse 6. He says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. You will always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body for beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she, has been, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Jesus says, her actions are perfectly appropriate. They're reasonable. But what makes this extravagant act of devotion reasonable is, rather than wasteful, is the identity of the person who's being anointed. And what he came to do. You know, Jesus had said something similar in Mark chapter 2, if you remember this. You, you read this and you kind of say, what does he mean when he says this? The poor you'll always have with you, but you won't always have me. Remember when the, the people came to Jesus and said, your disciples, everybody else is fasting, they're religious, but your disciples, they, they don't fast. What did Jesus say? When the bridegroom's with them, they're not going to fast. But when the bridegroom departs, they will fast. He's saying, Something really unique is here in me. Jesus is saying, I am unique. I am appointed for this time in human history, and I'm here, and I'm only going to be here for a little while, and I'm going to do something amazing. He's going to explain it here. And so he's saying, he's the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah who came to do what no one else could do. 
and he wants them to know who he is and what he's come to do, he is unique in human history. No one else could do what he came to do. And he says, she has done a beautiful thing. Look, what he's, look at the words say, to me. Do you remember when Jesus said to the disciples, I'm going to die, and they're on the way to Jerusalem? What were they arguing about? Do you remember? <laughs> they were saying, which one's the greatest, me or you? The, the disciples were actually arguing about who was the greatest disciple. This is after Jesus tells them he's going to die. This woman... She's not doing this to get anything from Jesus. She's not doing it to prove that she's devoted to him. She's doing it because she loves him. She sees who he is. She sees he's unique. He's special. I don't think she even knew that he was going to die, but she, out of the abundance of heart, she does it. Not, she, doesn't, you know, she doesn't give this huge donation so she get an extra brick in the new Jerusalem with her name on it. She's just out of the abundance of her heart. And look what it says. It says, Jesus says, she has done what she could. What she could. I mean, she could have done a lot less, couldn't she? She could have put in $10,000 and it would have been good. But no, she's been extravagant. She's done what she could. It reminds you of the widow in chapter 12 who gave out of her great poverty everything she had. This woman did all that she could to show her devotion to the Lord. And she does this beautiful act of devotion, not realizing that she, in fact, is anointing Jesus for burial. Jesus lets us know that. He, she's anointed him for burial. Jesus knows he's not going to live out the week. This is his final week on the earth. And once again, Jesus wants his disciples to know that he did not come to be served, but to serve and he came to give his life as a ransom for many. He's going to die for the sins of many. And this woman anoints him with a very expensive anointment that the Jewish people would normally put on a person's body after death. And then he says this, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Jesus is saying what's about to take place is going to transform the world. He's going to do something that nobody else can do. And it's going to change the message of salvation to the world. The gospel is going to come forth, and it's going to go to the very ends of the earth. And wherever it is, this story is going to be told. And we're telling it again this morning, isn't it? Isn't that cool? This woman has done an amazing thing. And then you see at the end here, you see at the end of this section here, Judas Iscariot was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him. And when they heard it, they were glad. This is one of those Mark and sandwiches. You see it again. Betrayal, then a story, and then betrayal. And um, then, although they intended to wait, now they have an opportunity. One of the disciples is coming to him. And that leads us to point two. And this is going to be the heart of our time here. We're going to spend this on the next section. Passover redefined. A new covenant. So look, at me, look with me at verse 12. It says there, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover's lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? It was the first day now of Passover. This is the last evening that Jesus will live on the earth. His final evening on the earth. He's pulling away from the crowds. He's sitting down with his friends in a, in a friend's house. It's described as a large upper room furnished and ready. 
And here on the final evening of Jesus' life, he spends an evening teaching his disciples, celebrating the Passover, sharing a meal where the people of God for many generations would commemorate how God had delivered the people of Israel from slavery and the wrath and judgment of God through the blood of an innocent lamb. You know, John tells us a lot more about what happens in this upper room in his, in his gospel, but Mark is just laser-focused. He wants us to, to, to focus on what's going to happen to Jesus in the next 24 hours. And they're reclining at table. That's how they celebrated formal feasts there. And Jesus is about to add to the history of the Jewish people by instituting a new celebration that would serve to remind his people of what he came to do. But first he shares a bit of information that someone at the table is going to betray him. And you might, you might find this confusing if you were one of the disciples. You might find this disturbing. And interestingly, you know, before we move on to the, really the heart of this passage, I just think it's fascinating that they don't know who it is. Jesus knows who it is. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus didn't treat Judas any different knowing that he was going to betray him. Isn't that remarkable? I have a hard time when people mistreat me. I'm not always nice. I say that to my shame. God wants us to be kind. I mean, obviously, but it's just remarkable. They don't know who it is. And and, and Jesus then says something in verse 21 that's really important. Look at it in verse 21. He says, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Jesus Christ must go to the cross. Why? Because it's been written that he was going to go to the cross. He is fulfilling Scripture. It is written. That, what it mean, that, that means that it's written in Scripture that he would do this. He must fulfill the Scripture. That means God knew about it beforehand. That means everything that's happening is happening according to God's will. And yet, woe to the person who betrays him. You see in this picture the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of human agency. There is no contradiction between the two. God is in complete control, and that should comfort us as God's people because he's able to do what he needs to do, and he's doing it even now. So here we see the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of us. And then verse 22 through 24, we read, and they were, as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Okay? We're not talking in parables now. Jesus is sharing the meaning and the purpose of his death. And, and, and ironically, still at this point, the disciples have various levels of understanding. Jesus is explaining how he came to do what no one else in human history could do. He wants his disciple to understand that his cross is central to his mission. It's why he has been saying that he will be betrayed and killed and rise again. But in really, in order to understand this, we need just a little bit of background on Bible history. So I'm just going to just briefly share a little background because we need to understand that 
when God created Adam and Eve and they fell in the garden, what happened was fellowship with God was broken and humankind became corrupted by sin. We have sin within us, corrupting us, that we're enslaved to. And God, in the midst of that, promises that he's going to redeem us through a descendant of humanity. But a few chapters later, in the book of Genesis, he encounters a man called Abraham in the desert of Iraq. And he says something to Abraham that's perplexing. He's in the desert of Iraq in the second millennia, B.C. And he says, I am going to bless the whole world through one of your descendants. I'm going to bless the whole planet through one of your descendants. <laughs> That's kind of crazy, isn't it? Well, then Abraham's family goes down into Egypt. It's a whole story behind that. I'm not going to get into it all. And it says when they're down there and they're enslaved by Pharaoh, it says that he remembered his covenant with Abraham. And he raises up a deliverer named Moses. And he renews the covenant with Abraham and Moses is, is giving them the law and God pledges to be their God. They will be his people. And Moses then in Exodus 24, 8 says this. It should be on your screen. It says, Moses took the blood. This is how he ratified the covenant. He said, Moses took the blood, the blood of animals, threw it on the people and behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. Note the words, the blood of the covenant. This was the blood of animals. They were part of an entire sacrificial system, which was a way for the people to walk with God, a holy God, and have their sins representatively forgiven. It was representative of the sacrifice that would come in the future. They pointed forward to a future perfect sacrifice, the one that Jesus is explaining in this Passover meal. So the history of the Abraham then is, is, is the nation, you know, obeys, disobeys, breaks the covenant. There's all kinds of crazy things that happen. But in the midst of God's judgment on the people, the prophets say this. There's going to be a day coming, and there's going to be a new covenant. And it's going to be written on your hearts. It's going to provide for the forgiveness of sins. It's going to transform you. And guess what? It's going to be for the whole world. And that's the amazing story of the prophets. And now, this night, on the Passover, celebrating their deliverance from Egypt and deliverance from slavery, Jesus takes the bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, he gives it to them and says, take this, take, this is my body. He's not saying the bread and the wine have mystically turned into his Body. In fact, he's not really focusing on the bread and wine. He's focusing on what he's doing. He's standing there right in front of them, right? His body's right there. When he says, take, this is my body, he's, he's referring to the fact that his body and his blood are going to be an actual sacrifice for sins the very next day. The bread and wine represent the offering of his life as a sacrificial death on the cross. Jesus is the true sacrifice for the sins of sinful men and women. He's fulfilling God's promises. He's a descendant of Abraham who will now make a way for the world to be reconciled to God the Father. Isaiah, prophesying 700 years earlier, said this about Jesus. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, 
smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All of us, every one of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The next day, Jesus would be wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our sins. And then Jesus takes the cup, and it says there, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank it. And he said, this, listen to this, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Do you notice the similarity to the words that Moses spoke? He uses the exact same phrase that Moses spoke in ratifying the covenant. He just adds one word, my. This is my blood of the covenant. Jesus' blood is the blood of the new covenant. The new covenant predicted by Jeremiah that will not be just for Abraham's children, but for all the nations of the earth. It will offer forgiveness and a work of inward transformation by God's Holy Spirit. So what can Jesus do? Why can Jesus do what no one else can do? Why is he able to do this? How does Jesus' blood accomplish the forgiveness of sins? Well, friends, Jesus, unlike Adam, perfectly obeys God's law. And now he becomes a new representative for humanity. And as the second person of the Trinity, he takes on flesh and he lives a sinless life So he didn't require sacrifice for his own sins. As a perfect man and the son of God, Jesus is the only human that could reconcile humanity to God. So this is not simply a symbolic death. Jesus Christ, death on the cross, actually pays for the sins of all who look to him and receive what he's done for them. It actually pays for the sins of all who look to him and receive what he's done for them. Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Remember, he said, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. The author of Hebrews explains this by saying that under the law before Christ, there was no forgiveness of sins with the shedding of the blood of animals. They just represented what Jesus was doing here. Look what it says in Hebrews 10 on your screen there. It says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. Animal sacrifices could never take away sin. But Jesus' sacrifice of himself was sufficient for all of humanity, for all time. His sacrifice was completed, and he sat down. His work is finished. And now men and women around the planet are able to receive the fruit of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross by repenting 
not living for themselves, by surrendering their lives to Jesus Christ and believing that they need a Savior and that that Savior has come, he's appeared, he's taken the sins that they deserve to pay, and now he wants to live within them and give them new life in Christ and restore their relationship. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, offers forgiveness of sins the filling of the Holy Spirit and an opportunity to know and walk with God. Jesus did something that had never been done before and it'll never be done again. He makes it possible for men, women, and children to know and love and live our lives for the glory of God. Praise God. Amen. He came to do what no one else could do and then he did it for our good. And as the end of his life approaches, he memorializes his teaching at this Passover meal, informing our understanding of how he fulfills the Old Testament. He is the Passover lamb. He's the one averting the wrath of God. He is the new Moses who delivers his people from slavery, and not earthly slavery, from the slavery of sin and from the slavery of the fear of death. He is the perfect priest, the perfect sacrifice, and he now dwells in us through his Holy Spirit. And he memorializes this work in a meal that Mark talked about just a little while ago that's to be celebrated again and again until he returns a second time to bring us back with him to celebrate in eternity. He suffered in death so that we could live eternally with him, friends. So when we take the Lord's Supper, as we do each Sunday, it is to remind us both of what Christ has done in bringing his kingdom in a new way and that he is coming back to bring the kingdom in his fullness and that Jesus did what no one else could do. He came to do it, he did it, and he accomplished a transformation of human life on this planet. Scripture refers this to this as this great salvation. <laughs> it's incredible, this great salvation. So this is my body, this is my body. How, do, how should we respond to this? How should we respond to this great salvation? Well, you know, Paul, in writing the book of Romans, exposits this death for 11 chapters, and he gets to chapter 11, and he says something there that is quite powerful. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, you could just put that up on the screen there, Romans 12, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. As you think about what Jesus Christ has done, as you just put that in your mind, as you think, what he's done for me, the expression of the Father's love for you. Think of the woman, her, her sacrifice. She did it for him. He's saying, offer your body, your life as a living sacrifice, everything. Do it for him. In light of what he's done for you, live for him. Everything you have, every gift you have, there's... A lot of gifts in this room. Some are very significant and powerful. Some are less or more modest. 
Whatever you have received, it's been given to you by God. It's for his glory. And now that you've become aware of what he's done for you, this whole series is called Follow Me. Jesus said, if you want to follow me and you want to be my disciple, you need to take up your cross daily and follow me. And so, in a sense, we're called to every day as we get up, we've, we've already committed our lives to Christ, but every day just say, I'm going to die to the world again, Lord. I want to follow you to the cross, to this world, and I want to live this day for you. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. We want to live for him. And it says that she did what she could. We want to we want to do what we can. Wouldn't you like that to be said about you at the end of your life? That Jesus, you see Jesus, and he says, you did what you could. Well done, good and faithful servant. He's, we're not here to judge each other. We're doing, we live our lives to Jesus Christ alone. We do it for the audience of one. It's not to be impressive of other people. We serve lots of people in our lives with, with Jesus Christ. He tells us to serve our children, our spouses, our families, our communities. We're all to be serving other people. But as we serve them, we really are doing it because we're serving Jesus Christ. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He's the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And you know what? He's the one who's the father of the person you're serving. And so, and finally, make it an extravagant offering. Like this woman, give everything. Offer your life. Offer everything that you have. And, you know, one of the things that, that will happen if you do this, if you live this way, and I think this is important to recognize when we go through a text like this, is that there will be people who will say, what a waste. Some people are going to see you living for Jesus Christ and say, what a waste. You know, maybe you, you've chosen as your profession to serve a group of people that your job allows you to serve. And somebody says, you were the top of your class. You could have done anything you wanted. What a waste. No, you're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, you may choose to live a lower standard of living so you can be more generous. Somebody says, what a waste. You could have had better wheels, better crib. You know, you could have had a lot of stuff, man. But you're just living for Jesus. Maybe... Maybe you're a young couple here and you're thinking about going to a, a, an unreached people group. Someplace in the world where they've never heard the gospel, where it's very difficult. I can tell you if, you, if you, if you start to dream about doing that, people are going to say, what a waste. It's too dangerous. But may God inspire many of us to go to the ends of the earth with the good news because Jesus Christ has given his all. So let's give our all. And if you're here today and an unbeliever, and you haven't received this work of Christ, I can't, I, I know Spurgeon's father used to say this about Spurgeon. He'd say, Spurgeon can preach the gospel better than me, but he can't preach a better gospel than I can preach. I can't preach the gospel any better than what's in this text here. It shows you how much Christ loves you, how much the Father loves this world that he would send his one and only son. What more can God do to show you and demonstrate his love for you that while you're still a sinner, Christ died for you? I want to just urge you this morning. Jesus says, 
come and receive my love for you. If you have any questions about that or you want to talk about that, many people around here, the person who brought you here would be happy to talk to you about that. I'd be happy to talk to you about that. But please, believe in Jesus. He is the Savior of the world. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus came to offer his life, and he offers you life this morning. So let's stay awake to these realities. And remember, Jesus came to do something no one else could do, and then he did it. And he memorialized this in a meal, which we're going to celebrate right now. And uh, we're, going to, we're going to celebrate the meal that Jesus instituted on Passover. As Mark said, the bread and the juice are available all around the room, different places. If you don't have one, you can go get one right now. The Bible refers to the Lord's Supper or the sacraments as signs and seals. What that means, I often wonder, what does that mean? A sign is something that points to something else. And what this points to is the promises of God. God promised to redeem humankind. You can go back as far as you want. Genesis 3, God promised to redeem us. Genesis 12, you can go to, you can go to the, the, the Mosaic sacrifice. You go to the promise to David. Go to Jeremiah. God promised to redeem us. Jesus fulfilled that promise. And this is a symbol of God fulfilling his promises. So when you take of this, let's take of the Let's take the bread. This represents the body of Christ given as a sacrifice for you and me. Let's partake. Let's take the juice. Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. As you take it, remember and give thanks for his blood shed for you.